Greetings, everyone. I'm Jesse Hipper Rosario, Director of Member Relations and ASHP's Staff Liaison to the Section of Specialty Pharmacy Practitioners here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature on specialty pharmacy from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So today we're going to go over common, but then also some significant adverse drug events that are associated with antipsychotics. And you can see listed ones here that we're going to go through. We're going to start with some of the ones that people have most heard of and think about, like extrapyramidal and motor side effects. And then we're going to go through some more that maybe you didn't usually think about when you think about antipsychotics. So let's talk about how antipsychotics and their mechanism of action actually leads to the adverse events that we talk about in this presentation. So their mechanism of action is really complex and it involves lots of different receptors. So dopamine receptors, serotonin, histamine, and muscarinic receptors are all involved. Classically though, the majority of antipsychotics antagonize dopamine B2 postsynaptic receptors. So when antipsychotics were first made, this was the mechanism of action of how they worked, or at least that it was thought that was how they worked. And so when we think of antipsychotics today, dopamine receptor antagonism is the main way that we think that antipsychotics work. Now, there are a few exceptions, and you can see the exceptions listed here on this slide. So aripiprazole, rexpiprazole, periprazine, and pemivanserin are all exceptions to this rule. So aripiprazole and brexpiprazole are both partial B2 agonists, so they're not B2 antagonists, they're partial agonists. Periprazine, which is another new antipsychotic, is a D2, D3 partial agonist, but it's preferential to D3. And then pemivanserin has no effects on dopamine at all. So these are all exceptions to this rule. Something else that I want to point out and that I want people to keep in mind is that you can split antipsychotics into two different groups. And so you'll often hear of first generation versus second generation antipsychotics. And the difference between the two, other than just in general that first generation antipsychotics tend to be older and second generation antipsychotics tend to be newer, is that second generation antipsychotics have a stronger binding affinity to serotonin 5-HT2 receptors, and that exceeds their affinity to B2 receptors. And really that's just important to keep in mind because antipsychotics mechanism and how they bind to different receptors affects their adverse effect profile. So let's talk a little bit more about how antipsychotics actually work on psychosis. So the dopamine receptor occupancy theory of psychosis treatment basically states that the more dopamine receptors that are occupied or antagonized by the antipsychotic, the more likely you are to help treat that psychosis. So the psychosis is thought to be due to an overabundance of dopamine. If we bind and antagonize these receptors, then we'll help treat psychosis. In general, the target occupancy that we like for these dopamine receptors is about 65 to 70%. Once we start to get over this target occupancy, that's when we start to get side effects. 
So let's talk a little bit more about what happens. So when we have an overabundance of blockade of dopamine D2 receptors, especially in particular areas of the brain, we can get certain side effect profiles. So the biggest side effect profile that I think most of us really associate with antipsychotics is extrapyramidal or motor side effect. And so these happen when we have an overabundance of dopamine blockade in the Niagara striatum or the motor cortex. So this is how we get these motor side effects. So some of the main side effects that you see for EPS are pseudo-Parkinson's-like side effects. So basically this means that these side effects really kind of mimic Parkinson's disease. And as many of us know, Parkinson's disease side effects occur due to a lack of dopamine. So in this case, these antipsychotics or these drugs mimic Parkinson's disease because they antagonize dopamine in the Niagara striatum. So what sort of side effects are you going to see? So you'll see tremor, you'll see rigid muscles, bradykinesia is slower movements, and akinesia is a difficulty moving muscles. So these are all side effects that you can see that are very similar to Parkinson's disease, and they're caused by blockage of dopamine in the Niagara striatum. So too much of the dopamine blockage, you get these side effects. So that's why that target occupancy is a little bit lower, so that we still get the effect of reducing psychosis, but not too much to causing these side effects. Other side effects that you can see in terms of motor side effects, acute dystonia. So a dystonia is an involuntary muscle contraction. That can potentially be really serious if that involuntary muscle contraction, for example, is a contraction of your diaphragm. You might have trouble breathing. So dystonias can actually be quite serious. Akathisia is a type of motor side effect that's motor restlessness. So these patients really describe feeling almost anxious. They can't stop moving. They can't sit still. A lot of times it's somewhat hard to tell akathisia apart from potentially progressing of psychotic symptoms or maybe just anxiety. But once it's teased out, it's a motor side effect. And again, it's caused by too much dopamine blockage. And then finally, the last motor side effect that you can see is tardive dyskinesia. So tardive dyskinesia is a little bit of a different beast. So this is a side effect that we usually see when somebody has been on an antipsychotic for a longer period of time. And generally the symptoms of tardive dyskinesia that you'll see are sort of a rhythmic choreic sort of dancing muscle movement. It's involuntary. The person can potentially stop that movement if they think about it and try, but as soon as they stop thinking about it, the movement comes back. A lot of times you'll see things like lip smacking or potentially a tongue moving in and out. So a lot of times involuntary rhythmic movements of the facial muscles can be seen. Another big one that you'll see is people tapping their fingers or moving their hands. And again, Sometimes people don't even notice that they're doing this. If they focus on it, they can stop. But if they're not focusing, the movement just starts right back up again. So in addition to movement side effects, other side effects that you can see because of too much dopamine blockade include endocrinopathy. So dopamine and prolactin are opposites. So if you block dopamine, you get an increase in prolactin. If you have an increase in prolactin, you can get Side effects such as gynecomastia, galacteria, perhaps a stop in menses, and then potentially long-term as well, osteoporosis. 
finally, I just want to mention a very rare side effect called neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So NMS is a life-threatening idiosyncratic reaction to antipsychotic drugs, and it's thought to be due to dopamine blockade. Again, it's really rare, but it could be fatal. The side effects that you can see if somebody has neuroleptic malignant syndrome include fever, altered mental status, muscle rigidity, and autonomic dysfunction. So as you can imagine, if a drug has a higher affinity to dopamine and blocks it more tightly, you also have an increased risk of these extrapyramidal symptoms and an increased risk of endocrinopathy. In general, since first-generation antipsychotics tend to bind more tightly to dopamine D2 receptors, they have a higher risk of EPS and also endocrinopathy. So, for example, some of the highest risk for EPS side effects would be haloperidol. And then notice that the lower affinity, so lower risk of these side effects, iloperidol, quetiapine, clozapine, are all second-gen antipsychotics. I do just want to pull out risperidone here as well. Even though risperidone is a second-gen, it is highly likely to cause EPS and endocrinopathy because it does still bind very tightly to those dopamine D2 receptors. So finally, a question that I do get asked a lot is, what about those D2 partial agonists? They do still have a risk of EPS side effects, but they have a reduced risk of prolactin elevation. And Kristen will talk a little bit later about how that might actually work for treating some of the side effects. But just keep in mind, aripiprazole, brexpiprazole, those partial D2 agonists, they do have a reduced risk of prolactin elevation. All right. So let's go to our first question. Which receptor or receptors is R thought to be involved in causing weight gain associated with antipsychotic use? A, histamine H1, B, dopamine D2, C, dopamine D3, D, muscarinic N3, E, serotonin 5-HT2C, F, H1 and 5-HT2C, G, H1 and D3, H, H1, 5-HT2C, and M3, or I, all of the above. Alright, so the answer to this question is H, histamine 1, serotonin 5-HT2C, and M3. We'll talk more about how these different receptors are related to weight gain, but one thing I just wanted to point out is that Notice that there are a lot of receptors associated with weight gain, and so antipsychotics that affect one or more of these receptors are more likely to cause weight gain. And the more receptors that those antipsychotics affect, the more likely that they are to cause weight gain. And then I just wanted to point out that dopamine is not related to weight gain in any way. All right. So another mechanism that antipsychotics have in the brain is that they block alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. And so these can cause a few different side effects, but especially hypertension, dizziness, syncope, and potentially reflex tachycardia and priapism. So while we often don't really think of antipsychotics as causing these sort of side effects, it's really important to keep them in mind, especially for our elderly patients. A lot of times we may have to lower those antipsychotic doses because of that risk of hypotension, because we don't want to make somebody who's unsteady even more unsteady because of the drug we've added on. 
So again, as you can see, the antipsychotics that have a higher affinity for these alpha-1 receptors tend to have a little bit more risk of these side effects, whereas those with lower affinity, so for example, ziprazidone or potentially aripiprazole, have a lower risk of this orthostasis and might be a little bit easier to use in some of our elderly patients. So continuing on for side effects that have to do with cardiac, antipsychotics have a risk of sudden cardiac death. Most likely this is attributed to an increase in QTC, and you can see on this slide that I've listed a few example mean QTC prolongations for a few different antipsychotics, ranging all the way from thyroidazine, which is it's quite high, all the way down to haloperidol, which is a bit lower on the other end. So this is something really to keep in mind when you're adding on other drugs that prolong QTC, if you have one of these agents on board. So again, you can see some examples of some higher-risk antipsychotics and also some lower risk. I just wanted to single out haloperidol here for a moment, though. So haloperidol has a higher risk of QTC prolongation, especially when used IV. When it's used orally, the risk is a bit lower. So I, I just wanted to single out that's why this is up here in the higher risk, because it really depends on which method of formulation that you're giving something. All right, so let's move on to cardiometabolic adverse effects. So this is another adverse effect that I think a lot of us have heard of and really associate with antipsychotics, but especially the second-gen antipsychotics. So it's important to note that persons that have schizophrenia really have higher rates of these modifiable risk factors than others, and that over the course of the disease, about one-third can meet criteria for metabolic syndrome. And this is for a lot of reasons, but as a class, antipsychotic effects are on weight gain and cardiometabolic adverse effects are really related to their effects on muscarinic, histaminergic, serotonergic, and adrenergic receptors. So let's kind of single that out a little bit. So as I mentioned, second gens tend to be associated with higher rates of metabolic dysfunction than first gens. And that's again likely because these second gens tend to have enhanced effects on serotonergic receptors and a few others versus first gens, which tend to be a little bit more specific to dopamine receptors. It is important to keep in mind, though, that some low-potency first gens are still associated with weight gain and metabolic syndrome. And a really good example of this is chlorpromazine, which isn't used a ton anymore, but it's sort of an exception to the rule in this case. Another thing that it's important to keep in mind is, though, so second generations were studied a lot more in terms of their risk for cardiometabolic side effects, and first gens really haven't been studied as much. So it could also be that there's a lack of data for exactly how much first gens affect cardiometabolic adverse effects. So it's important to keep that in mind that just because somebody's on a first gen doesn't mean that you just can completely not think about cardiometabolic adverse effects. So let's break down a little bit more what receptors we're talking about that really cause these effects. So specifically, histamine 1 receptor antagonism is associated with both weight gain and sedation. M3 receptors are associated with impaired insulin and glucose regulation, and mostly these are found due to antagonism of these M3 receptors in the pancreas and in the hypothalamus, and then potentially these changes can even lead potentially up to diabetes. And then finally, serotonin 5-HT2C antagonism is also associated with weight gain. 
And now you'll notice there's a few examples of antipsychotics on here that have a higher affinity to all of these receptors, so notably clozapine and olanzapine here. And so really it's a combination of their effects on all of these receptors that really cause their extraordinary increase in cardiometabolic side effects and weight gain. When you single out weight gain specifically, it's important to remember that most weight gain occurs during about the first six weeks of treatment. And there do tend to be higher rates of weight gain in people that are antipsychotic naive when they start. So specifically for weight gain, clozapine, olanzapine are really the big ones that most of us have heard of. And then in terms of those that are at lower risk, we're talking about aripiprazole, brexpiprazole, piperazine, lorazidone, ziprazidone. The only thing I want to point out, though, is just because they're lower risk doesn't mean that there's no risk. There is still a little bit of risk of weight gain with some of these. However, there's definitely a lot lower risk of weight gain versus, for example, clozapine or lansipine. All right, so some other effects of muscarinic blockade. So anti-muscarinic, anticholinergic side effects, many of us well know, dry mouth, constipation, and so on. Unfortunately, chlorpromazine, clozapine, quetiapine, I've mentioned these several times. You can see them playing out again. So these risks just continue to be high risk for these medications. And then you can kind of see repetition of lower risks, leprazidone, lorazidone on there as well. One thing I do want to pull out and single out for anticholinergic side effects, though, is constipation. So a lot of times I think that we think of constipation as maybe not so much of a big deal. But the risk with most antipsychotics is there to cause constipation. And so it's important to really keep in mind this risk and to really be monitoring our patients. One physician I work with calls it constipating our patients to death. The FDA actually pulled out a warning specifically for clozapine, for clozapine-induced ileus due to constipation. So it's actually really important that we're monitoring and watching for this side effect. All right, so let's move on to a few more other adverse effects before we're done. So patients with schizophrenia in general have an increased risk of seizures and epilepsy, but antipsychotics as well can also increase that risk. The highest risk, again, clozapine. I've talked about it so many times, unfortunately. For clozapine specifically, the risk really increases with dose. So it's important to make sure that clozapine is dosed carefully in order to lower this risk. In terms of lower risk options, haloperidol and risperidone are both options that are a little bit lower risk in terms of seizure. So another slightly less well-known side effect of antipsychotics is their association potentially with an increased risk of VTE and PE. There's not an evidence that a first-gen versus second-gen or one particular antipsychotic other than clozapine is necessarily at higher risk versus another. So if a patient does experience this with an antipsychotic, you would just change to a different antipsychotic, hopefully not clozapine if you can avoid it. All right, so I just briefly wanted to mention blood dyscrasias with antipsychotics. So I think many of us know that clozapine is associated with a granulocytosis. It's quite famous and notorious for that. But I also wanted to point out that there are a lot of other antipsychotics that have this risk as well. So if your patient is having a problem and they're on an antipsychotic, it's important to at least think about or include the antipsychotic in the differential diagnosis for why they're having this problem. Because as you can see, quite a few of them can cause all sorts of blood dysphagias. All right, and finally, I want to mention clozapine-induced myocarditis. So this is another side effect that can be really serious, but is rarely thought about. 
Thankfully, it is rare. However, it can potentially be fatal. It usually occurs very early on in treatment, so usually within the first two weeks or so. And it's also potentially related to faster dose titrations. So that's just one more reason that clozapine really should be titrated up carefully. The clinical presentation is pretty variable and kind of vague. So shortness of breath, fast heart rate, just feeling bad in general. What I often tell patients when they first start on clozapine is just to let us know in general if they start feeling sick, if they get a fever, if they start feeling bad, because that can help us potentially diagnose clozapine-induced myocarditis. It can help us point out a problem with the granulocytosis. Really a lot of things that could potentially happen. So that's one thing that I make sure that I always have for my patients that are new to starting clozapine on. It's something to watch for when they first start. And hopefully that can help prevent this rare but fatal side effect. All right, so I will go ahead and pass it along to Kristen for the next section. Hi everybody, my name is Kristen Waters. And now that Dara has had the chance to talk with everybody about all the different adverse effect profiles, I will dive more into the monitoring and management strategies. Starting with our metabolic monitoring recommendations, they do depend on what parameter we're talking about. So for example, BMI is something we're going to be monitoring at every visit at first, because as Dara mentioned, the most weight gain will occur towards the beginning of treatment with an antipsychotic. It's also important that at baseline, we're asking the patient if they themselves have a history of obesity or if it runs in their family, if they have diabetes or a history of that, dyslipidemia, hypertension, or any other cardiovascular diseases, and just checking in with them on an annual basis to see if anything about that history has changed. We'll also use waist circumference as a measurement of potential weight increase and cardiovascular risk. Blood pressure should be checked at every visit, and then fasting glucose and A1C at baseline and after three months. And then same with the lipid panel, we will do it at baseline after three months, and then after that, we would just check it every five years. Non-pharmacologic treatment strategies can be helpful in treating metabolic adverse effects. Behavioral interventions such as diet and exercise, I always kind of talk with my patients about, I know it's easier said than done. And some of our patients, especially with schizophrenia, do have additional barriers to kind of complying with these non-pharmacologic options. For example, they may be unhoused, they may not have a lot of income, but it still is important that we try to get the patient on board with these non-pharmacologic strategies. Dara also mentioned that smoking is very common with our patients with schizophrenia. So if we can encourage smoking cessation, then that can help with the metabolic adverse effect and cognitive behavioral therapy can also be effective. Pharmacologically, we should consider starting antipsychotics with those that have fewer metabolic adverse effects, especially for our patients who have not been on an antipsychotic previously because they are more sensitive to those metabolic effects. If these side effects happen, we can switch the patient to a different antipsychotic, which I'm going to be saying a lot during this management section. And we do have the potential to add medications to the patient's current regimen if we do see that metabolic adverse effects happening, whether it's dyslipidemia or weight gain. Metformin and topiramate have the most evidence for treating weight gain associated with antipsychotics, although a lot of different agents have been studied. 
And we can also use lipid lowering agents, which is typically going to be statin therapy in accordance with the ACC AHA guidelines. And metformin could also be an option as a lipid lowering agent. Moving on to EPS, there are different monitoring parameters according to which type of EPS we're talking about. Acute dystonic reaction and pseudoparkinsonism is a lot of the times based on observation and patient report. I did list a few scales there that can be used, but this is something that should be assessed at every visit. And then akathisia, which as a reminder is that kind of feeling of internal restlessness. I really want to kind of emphasize how important it is to ask the patient about this at every visit because akathisia has been linked to an increased risk of suicide. We want to make sure that if the patient is experiencing this, we are addressing it as soon as possible. In tardive dyskinesia, we do have some formal scales for that. So the abnormal involuntary movement scale or AIMS is one that pharmacists are able to become certified to administer. So that is potentially a role for pharmacists to assess if patients who have been on those antipsychotics for a longer period of time are developing that, as tardive dyskinesia can be permanent if we don't catch it. And then there's also something called the discus scale. Tardive dyskinesia doesn't necessarily have to be assessed at every visit. So we would assess at baseline and then every six to 12 months. But if they are higher risk for some reason, for example, they've had tardive dyskinesia in the past or they're on maybe a higher risk antipsychotic, we may consider more frequent monitoring. Some treatment strategies for EPS also depend on which type of movement disorder they're exhibiting. If a patient experiences an acute dystonic reaction, they will know. They will be uncomfortable, can be painful. And this is an, a more emergent adverse effect for a lot of patients. If a patient does experience this, we would treat it by administering an IV or IM anticholinergic. So that tends to be diphenhydramine or benzodiazepine. And it is important that we remember if the antipsychotic has a long half-life, the anticholinergic could wear off and they could kind of go back into that dystonic reaction. So we may need to administer additional anticholinergic doses. Pseudoparkinsonism, we can also use anticholinergic, so the benzotropine and diphenhydramine again. Trihexphenidyl is another potential option. And then amantadine, because of its dopamine agonist activity, may also be effective in treating that pseudoparkinsonism. Akathisia, while we can use anticholinergic, it tends to be pretty common that instead we would treat akathisia with a beta blocker. Propranolol is lipid-soluble and crosses over the blood-brain barrier more easily than some of our other beta blockers, so that's kind of the most common, and it is used in divided doses throughout the day. Benzodiazepines are other options for akathisia, although a lot of times we are trying to avoid initiating standing benzos for our patients. And trazodone is kind of an alternative option if the patient is resistant. Tartar dyskinesia, we will tend to switch the antipsychotic to something with less of that potential effect. So we talked about clozapine and quetiapine. Even though those medications have kind of their own set of side effects, they do have less association with tardive dyskinesia. If that's not possible, or the patient's still experiencing tardive dyskinesia on one of those medications, then we can consider initiating something else. So we do have the newer BMAP2 inhibitors, so 
dutetrabenazine and melbenazine are FDA approved for tardiveness kinesia. Tetrabenazine is approved for Huntington's chorea, so the movement associated with Huntington's disease. Right now, these medications can be expensive and they are only available through specialty pharmacies, but some patients can get it covered, so it could be an option for some. Although I will say I still see more of decreasing the dose or switching to another antipsychotic. Clonazepam is again another option, although the same concern about initiating a standing benzodiazepine. And interestingly, there is some pretty good evidence for the use of ginkgo biloba. There's some evidence for amantadine here as well. And then kind of as a more towards a last line option, we have non-pharmacologic treatment with deep brain stimulation. To prevent EPS, we want to make sure we're starting our antipsychotics at the lower doses and increasing slowly, choosing a medication with less EPS risk, especially if the patient has experienced that in the past. To help prevent an acute dystonic reaction from occurring, we can consider initiating a standing oral anticholinergic medication if we are starting an antipsychotic that would be considered more high risk. So some of those high potency first generation antipsychotics like haloperidol or flufenazine. And then tardiveness kinesia, unfortunately, anticholinergics can actually worsen those symptoms. So kind of on the flip side of what I just said, we don't wanna overuse our anticholinergics. And we want to try to limit the use of both antipsychotics and anticholinergics to the shortest period of time possible and attempt to decrease the dose over time. Some monitoring considerations for the endocrine and reproductive health, starting with hyperprolactinemia. A lot of it's gonna be based on symptoms. We should be monitoring this in all patients treated with antipsychotics, especially if it's an antipsychotic at a higher risk of causing that increase in prolactin. We should be screening this at baseline and then at every visit for the first 12 weeks and then yearly. Prolactin levels are a little controversial. There is a little bit of a mixed recommendations about them. Generally, we want to check a prolactin level at baseline and then we wouldn't necessarily repeat it unless the patient is showing some sign of hyperprolactinemia. So if they're having galactorrhea, they're having a loss of their menstrual period, then we may consider checking the level. But if we just routinely check the level, we could find that it's elevated, even though the patient isn't having any symptoms. And then we kind of may not know what to do with that information. Pregnancy tests are recommended for women of childbearing potential before starting antipsychotic therapy. Although most antipsychotics, or I should say all of them, are generally considered safe in pregnancy. So it's not a contraindication to starting that antipsychotic. And then symptoms of sexual dysfunction can really be a reason that a patient becomes non-adherent with their antipsychotic treatment. So all patients who are receiving an antipsychotic should be asked about this at every visit. And then we had mentioned priapism briefly before. This, of course, is kind of a different situation that requires emergent treatment if it is to occur. How to manage these side effects if they do occur? Hyperprolactinemia. I feel like kind of a broken record, but decrease the dose of the antipsychotic or switch to another one. There are some antipsychotics with less of this hyperprolactin elevating effect that I've listed there. And then we could also add a dopamine agonist. And sometimes it can be hard for people to wrap their mind around 
thinking of aripiprazole as both a dopamine antagonist and a dopamine agonist. But because of its dopamine agonism activity, we could actually add aripiprazole to another antipsychotic and hopefully reverse that hyperprolactinemia. This could be one time where the use of two antipsychotics may be considered the benefit would outweigh the risk. Bromocryptine and cabergoline are other dopamine agonists that we could potentially add. Sexual dysfunction, switched medications, and there is some evidence that our male patients who experience erectile dysfunction can have some benefit from the use of sildenafil. QTC prolongation monitoring is most important in our patients who have certain risk factors. So if the medication has a high risk of QTC prolongation, then of course we're going to be monitoring that. But also if the medication only has a moderate risk of QTC prolongation, but the patient has other cardiac risk factors. If the patient has a history of cardiac disease, other medications that could add to this effect, elderly patients or other significant medical history, then we will be monitoring those EKGs. And then also the serum potassium and magnesium, because we know that low levels of those electrolytes may contribute to arrhythmias. So definitely an important thing to monitor alongside the EKG. And the frequency is generally going to be annually. And if a medication dose is increased or something about the medication regimen changes to make the patient more at risk of this adverse effect. There aren't really any specific monitoring guidelines for some of the other miscellaneous cardiovascular adverse effects. So things like tachycardia, orthostatic hypotension, and BTE don't really have specifics of when or how frequently to monitor them. If the patient does experience QTC prolongation, we can do a few things to manage it. One would be, of course, kind of ahead of the curve, avoiding concomitant medications with a high risk of causing QT prolongation, especially with patients who, for example, have a history of arrhythmia or have bradycardia. We don't get extremely concerned until the patient's QTC is above 500 milliseconds. And then I've split it into kind of our lower standards, which are different according to the patient's sex. But if the patient's QTC does increase by more than 30 to 60 milliseconds, even if it's below that 500, then that could be concerning as well. We want to make sure we continually monitor the QTC until it comes back to the normal range. And generally that might be through reducing the dose or switching to another antipsychotic. The kind of miscellaneous cardiovascular adverse effects really have treatment that's similar to if these effects happened to a patient who wasn't taking an antipsychotic. So for tachycardia, Yes, we can switch the antipsychotic, but we could also initiate a beta blocker. If the patient has orthostatic hypotension, non-pharmacologically, we want to make sure they are hydrated, they can wear compression stockings. And I do often speak with patients about how to kind of go from laying down to sitting to standing slowly, especially when they first start an antipsychotic to avoid that kind of dizziness that can go along with the orthostatic hypotension. If the patient is experiencing it, we can consider splitting up the dose of antipsychotics so they're not getting all of it all at one time. We can switch and then fludrocortisone is an option. That would be more, say, the patient's tried a lot of antipsychotics and finally they've found one that's effective for them and we don't want to decrease the dose or stop it, then we may consider adding that on. As Dara pointed out, clozapine does have a lot of specific adverse effects and therefore a lot of specific monitoring. 
agranulocytosis is the rare but serious adverse effect that the REMS program requires us to monitor for. So we have to get an ANC at the frequency that's dictated by that REMS program. That means that from the time a patient starts clozapine up through six months, they'll be getting their CBC drawn weekly. Then from month six to 12, it's every two weeks. And then past that 12 month point, they can get the lab monthly. Myocarditis does not have specific monitoring recommendations. It's not part of the REMS program. We can consider obtaining troponin or C-reactive protein. And especially if we do suspect myocarditis, as we talked about before, it's kind of general symptoms that might be vague. Getting an echocardiogram to rule out myocarditis is important. This adverse effect is most likely to occur within the first month. So for example, at my practice site, we do obtain baseline CRP and troponin levels, and then we check those weekly for the first four weeks for our patients who were clozapine naive. And we have caught a couple cases kind of early in the development of myocarditis. We hope that you enjoyed the presentation today. The key takeaways that we want you to come away with are, despite the significant adverse effects associated with antipsychotics, they're still the mainstay of treatment for patients with schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders such as mood disorders. There are differences in adverse effect profiles of the antipsychotic drugs. They're really not kind of a homogenous class. And pharmacists can help to provide guidance in the monitoring for and management of those antipsychotic-induced adverse effects. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Jesse Hippo-Rosario from ASHP Official and thank you for listening in.